to Ruth, and uh, we're going to do something a little bit different. Come on in. We'll start in Ruth, uh, chapter 4, verse 13, and I'm going to do kind of what I did last week. I'm going to uh, skip us on ahead to uh, Matthew's gospel. So this is Ruth, chapter 4, verse 13. This is God's Word. Listen to God's Word. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. Then he went to her, and the Lord enabled her to conceive, and she gave birth to a son. The women said to Naomi, Praise be to the Lord, who this day has not left you without a kinsman redeemer. May he become famous throughout Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you and who is better to you than seven sons has given him birth. Then Naomi took the child, laid him in her lap, and cared for him. The women living there said, Naomi has a son. And they named him Obed. And he was the father of Jesse, the father of David. This then is the family line of Perez. Perez was the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Amminadab, Amminadab the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Salmon, Salmon the father of Boaz, Boaz the father of Obed, Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David. Now if you would flip ahead to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 1. We'll start in Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. And this is God's Word, and it reads this way. A record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez and Terah, whose mother was Tamar, Perez the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Amminadab, Amminadab, the father of Nashon, Nashon, the father of Salmon, Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab, Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth, Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, Abijah, the father of Asa, Asa, the father of Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat, the father of Jehoram, Jehoram the father of Uzziah, Uzziah the father of Jotham, Jotham the father of Ahaz, Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, Manasseh the father of Amon, Amon the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. After the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel the father of Abiad, Abiad the father of Eliakim, Eliakim the father of Azer, Azer the father of Zadok, Zadok the father of Achim, Achim the father of Eliad, Eliad the father of Eliezer, Eliezer the father of Matan, Matan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. And let's pray again. Father, May the truth be spoken and received here today. In Jesus' name, amen. What is the Bible? 
What is the Bible? Uh, it's God's Word. Yes, it is God's Word. Um, it's truth. Oh, yes, it's truth. God's, it is God's Word and it's truth. But what is the message of the Bible? I wonder how many people could sit down and write in a sentence what the message of the Bible is. Now, you might, you might be thinking, well, um, uh, God's, uh, I don't know, goodness. Well, the Bible certainly reveals something of God's goodness, His manifold goodness. But what is the message of the Bible? What is the topic? What is the, the, the message of the Bible? Here's a good definition for you. The history of God's redemption of His people for His own glory. Now that is a great definition. The history of God's redemption of His people for His own glory. Now why would I start uh, in that way? I begin that way because in, in, in coming to the close of, this is, I promised you an epilogue. This is my epilogue to the book of Ruth. When you come to the end of the book of Ruth, you know, you look through commentaries and they've got all these things about kinsman redeemer and all these, you know, details about geology and stuff and, and uh, geography, geography, sorry, and stuff. And, uh, and uh, you get to the end and they, there's like uh, two sentences on the last chunk of verses here, this uh, genealogy. And uh, it, it's, it's very easy for people to kind of look at this and kind of, uh, kind of throw it away. In fact, there are people that, that suggest, if, one, of the, one commentary I, I uh, read, the guy said, um, no one really knows why the scripture writer included this genealogy at the end of this book. You know, who? Go figure. Uh, and other people have thought over the years that uh, some well-meaning scribe thought, well, I'm just going to stick this on the end of it and just kind of this, it's this arbitrary thing kind of hooked on the end of it and some well-meaning person just attached it years later and it wasn't really a part of the whole book. Well, I don't claim to know all the answers, ladies and gentlemen, but if you've been here over the past few weeks, I think you know how I, I feel about this genealogy showing up at the end of the story. In fact, if you read that and do what we just did, which is go to Matthew 1, don't you go, oh, wow, I mean, the God who is placarded throughout the book of Ruth is shown to be faithful throughout the winding course of history, even to the bringing of his promised son. That does make a little bit of sense, doesn't it, on the, on the tail end of a book that has such a, uh, such a theme. Now, there's a message of great hope for you today in, in this genealogy and in the one in Matthew. In light of uh, what some of you have faced in the last year, in light of uh, some of the challenges that our church is going through and has gone through in the past, this is a word of great hope. Um, a heavy cloud may be hovering over your, your personal life right now. Uh, you may wonder if you will ever be happy again. You open up the newspaper, uh, you pop on the news and you see shootings and you see crack dealers and you see murder and rape you see all kinds of terrible things. You see, uh, you know, teen pregnancies, and um, you see poison on the internet, and poison on advertisements. Is anybody in here an advertisement person? You'd look at advertisements. Who who does, by the way? Not many. All right. Well, I do. Isn't it 
just subtly evil all the time. I mean, it's just constantly chipping away at the, the undergirding of our, of our, of our God-fearing culture. There's poison on, on, uh, in the human heart. The question is obvious, I think. Is this train running out of control? I mean, is it just steaming down the track, the brakes are broken, and it's just running, spiraling wildly out of control? Is it? Or is there someone behind the whole scene with his hands on the helm, guiding the thing? You know, we make decisions. Sometimes they're good. Sometimes they're bad. Sometimes they're righteous. Sometimes they're not. But is there somebody behind the scenes guiding this thing to a calculated, mathematical, purposeful end, and the purpose is good? Is there somebody like that? Well, you know, years ago, uh, I, I taught through uh, Joshua, and you would remember that, Denise and Bob and Joanne, you would remember Joshua, and uh, in fact, I filled up a whole floppy disk with uh, Joshua messages, and like 70% of them are bad, but, uh, but, I, but I filled one up anyway, and uh, you know, you teach through Joshua, and I mean, it's really exciting, and it seems like a neat idea at first. Because uh, you go, oh, Joshua, well, my goodness, you know, you've got all this be strong and, and very courageous stuff in the very beginning, and you think, well, that'll, that'll hold me for about five weeks. I mean, be strong and courageous, that's great. And then you go to, uh, you move on in, and uh, uh, you see, uh, uh, you know, Rahab, the um, lady of the evening, and uh, she hides the spies, and then you get into the whole thing, well, she lies, and then she shows up in Hebrews 11, and what do we do with that, you know? And... Um, then, then it moves on, and they, God crosses the water, and they go from Shittim, and, to, and they pass the, uh, go through the uh, river, and then there's Jericho, and then they take Jericho, and it's all exciting. And then, oh, what else do we have? Oh, we have Achan's sin. That's a whole big thing. Then you've got Ai. There's this ambush. I mean, it's really exciting. And, uh, oh, the sun stands still? I mean, that's kind of big. It's exciting. And then all of a sudden, you, you study all these really bright commentary guys that are telling you how exciting it is and you get to chapter 12 and they write one page <laughs> on chapter 12 through chapter 21 and they go oh yeah and then there's some cities and towns and stuff and and you go well, but next week i gotta teach uh and it's cities and towns what do i say i listened to a a, a tape um a couple years ago, I have no idea who the guy was. It was a tape that was kind of sent to me in the mail, and I listened to the guy. He was some old guy, and he had one. He was preaching on Romans. Don't turn. But he was preaching at the end of Romans. I think it's 16. The last, yeah, last chapter, Romans 16. And there's a list of people that uh, Paul sends his greetings to. So Romans 16, it says, "My greetings to so and so. Send my greetings to so and so. Greetings to so and so." And uh, this guy had one point, and his point was, and this is my impersonation of him. He said. Don't call it a list. And then he'd preach for about eight minutes, and then he'd come back and go, Don't call it a list. And that was his point. I don't remember anything about the sermon except, Don't call it a list. And you know what? I think he'd be glad that that's the only thing I remember. Because don't read catalogs of names and call it some list. Don't come to lists of, well, don't come to uh, collections of the names of cities and call it a list. Don't come to a genealogy and say, well, it's just a list of names that are hard to pronounce. Let's not bore ourselves with these things. I've heard people make fun of it. I've heard preachers make fun of it. Well, you know, it's just uh, chapters of cities. Well, it's not chapters of cities. You know what it is? 
It's a catalog of God's faithfulness. In every boring so-called list, there is a message of great hope for the Christian. You know, it's not just lists of cities. It's Cargoville, Arlington, it's Lakeland, it's Jackson, it's Union City. You know, it's, it's real places and things and facts that, that the original recipients, the original readers of this would say, oh yes, and that, and that, and that. God's faithful, 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 faithful. That's right, Cargoville, faithful. Don't call it a list. And don't look at these genealogies and think that they're boring. What they do is they, they corroborate God's, God's history of His faithfulness. They validate the fact that He makes promises. And not only does He keep them, but by His own power and might and nature, backs them. Don't call it a list. Well, I promised you an epilogue. So flip back to Ruth, if you would. Let's look at um, let's look at this passage a little bit in chapter four, verse thirteen. We see Boaz takes Ruth, he marries her. He went to her, and something happened. The Lord enabled her to conceive, and she gave birth to a son. Now, do we see God's sovereign involvement in in even the ending of this book? The Lord enabled her to conceive. She gives birth to a son. Then the women said to Naomi, verse 14, Praise be to the Lord who this day has not left you without a kinsman redeemer. May he become famous throughout Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you and who is better to you than seven sons has given him birth. Listen. Then Naomi took the child, laid him in her lap, and cared for him. And the women living there said, Naomi has a son. They named him Obed. It means worshiper. And he was the father of Jesse, the father of David. And then we move into Jesus Christ's family tree. Now, could you kick that door shut? Buddy, proud of you. Um, Naomi is a grandmother. And the scene is a joyous scene. And yet, I think it's very easy to forget the poignancy of the scene uh, as well. Um, I remember my wedding day. And um, it was a joyous day. It's on video. We watch it. We have pictures. A joyous day. And yet, you know, there, there was, a, there was a, a bitterness to it in that Tammy's dad wasn't there. Because Tammy's dad died when she was in her early 20s. And it's... I promise you, I've shed tears over this many times because I wish that I had known the man. And so even in this joyous event, there's still this, these other dynamics that, that, that come into play. And I, I think that's what's happening here too. You know, Naomi holds this blessed child and looks down at this, this sweet thing that she loves and it's in her lap and she cares for it, him. And yet... Her husband, Elimelech, is not right there with his hand on her shoulder looking down. You know, there's a dynamic. Her husband is not living. And she still holds this child, which is her granddaughter. And even the, the people of the town say, Naomi has a son. Not yay, Ruth. I mean, the, the scripture writer brings us back to the, the place where Naomi has a son. Naomi, whose life was made bitter. Naomi has a son. And yet she's holding this baby uh, from her daughter-in-law 
And her own son, Malin, is not the father. Boaz is, another relative. And so there are dynamics to this thing. And yet, little did she know how profound was the statement of her friends. Verse 14. The women said to Naomi, Praise be to the Lord who this day has not left you without a kinsman redeemer. Naomi has a son. You want to know the, the, the lesson of the story. It's the genealogy that follows. It's basically the family tree of Jesus. She holds in her lap the family tree of Jesus. A kinsman redeemer. A kinsman redeemer. She holds the child through whose body will come the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, uh, Matthew, in, in, in our story in Matthew, when we pick up the genealogy, you notice that I didn't read it fast. I'm not trying to not bore you. Uh, it's important. And uh, as we look at this, let me tell you, there are a few things that, uh, that speak again of, of uh, God's sovereignty. Except for the last three names, uh, all the people from the Old Testament, except for uh, Joseph and Mary and Jesus, they're from the Old Testament. And uh, you put this list together, or this collection of uh, names, along with the other collection of names, and I think they're in the Bible to teach hope-filled truths. The Holy Spirit of God doesn't put things in here for no reason. There is a reason, and I think the reason is to give us a couple of hope-filled truths. So hope-filled truth number one is this. God controls the flow of human history. Uh, if you look at uh, verse 17 of Matthew 1, this is interesting. You'll find <clears throat> there were 14 generations in all from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to Christ. Now, that's pretty interesting. Um, don't turn, but... Uh, you know, you have these, you have these, these series of numbers, 14, 14, 14. Uh, listen to this. This is in Genesis. Uh, God is talking to Abram, and, he, and Abram falls face down, and God says to him, As for this, this is my covenant with you. As for me, this is my covenant with you, Abram. Okay? You will be the father of many nations. No longer will you be called Abram, which means exalted father, which is kind of ironic because uh, he's old and he's not a father and his wife is beyond childbearing years. No longer are you going to be called exalted father. You're going to be called Abraham, which means father of many. You will be the father of many nations. Uh, I will make you very fruitful. I will make nations of you and kings will come from you. I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants after you for the generations to come to be your God and the God of your descendants after you. The whole land of Canaan where you are now an alien, I will give you as an everlasting possession to you and your descendants after you and I will be their God. Now, you go to Matthew 1. And who's up there? Well, you got Abraham. <laughs> God makes this promise. And he controls the flow of human history all the way through the story of Ruth, all the way through different periods, all the way through rebellion and chaos. And he, and he brings forth the Savior. Jesus is the culmination of that. Now, you have these, this, this 
climax uh, at the end of these three groups. And you have to understand that Matthew's writing to Jewish people and he's thinking, okay, how can I help Jewish people understand uh, that Jesus is the, the real Messiah? He is who he says he is. How can I help them understand that? Well, I'm talking to Jewish people and they know that there are certain numbers that, that are meaningful to them. And one of those numbers is the number seven or any multiple of seven. The, uh, the universe was made in seven days. And at the end of seven days, it was perfect or complete. Okay? It was completed. It was made perfect in seven days. Um, here's another one for you. Um, Exodus 23.10. Uh, for six years, you are to plow your fields and harvest the crops. But during the seventh year, let the land lie unplowed and unused. All right? So he's using groups of seven. Fourteen, fourteen, fourteen. God has done this. All these years later, Matthew takes out his quill and writes it out, and it's meaningful to Jewish people because they say, oh, there's an order, there's a mathematical order here that brings about th this promised one. There's another number that has significance to Jewish people. Three. A classic example is Isaiah 6. Holy, holy, holy. Now, that has import. That, that is a number of, of perfection, of completion. Um, let me ask you if you've heard this before. Um, I bet you have. Um, I can start quoting it before I get there. The Lord bless you and keep you. Let me do this. The Lord make His face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord turn His face toward you and give you peace. You ever heard that before? I know you have. But has it ever dawned on you that it's the Lord bless you and keep you? The Lord make His face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord turn His face toward you and give you peace. You know, there's a, there's a harmony there. The Trinity. God in three persons. You know, those are meaningful things. And so you have this, interestingly, amazingly, in, uh, in uh, Matthew, you have three sets of 14. You know, sevens, 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 and three of them. And, and it's, it's astounding that it would work out with such precision. All that to say, all of history marches toward a goal. And God has laid out the goal. You know, it's not spinning out of control. It has mathematical meticulousness from Abraham to Bethlehem. Now, here's hope-filled truth number two. Oh, by the way, <laughs> you know, baby's, baby's in uh, Naomi's arms. And they say, Naomi, guess what that is? A kinsman redeemer. Where is she? Where is she? Bethlehem. <laughs> and she's holding a kinsman redeemer. Naomi, guess what you got there? A kinsman redeemer. Oh, isn't it wonderful? Well, God controls the flow of history. And then one day, Mary, where is she? Bethlehem. She holds it in her lap. A kinsman redeemer. The kinsman redeemer. I mean, if that's not, if that's not a, a, a testimony to God's sovereign hand, I don't know what is. You know, it wasn't far from that place that Ruth wandered into Boaz's field. God controls the flow of human history. Here's hopeful truth number two. God chooses flawed humans 
If you were to uh, sit down and make up some religion, you know, that's an accusation. Uh, well, it's just, you know, every culture. I don't know if anybody saw Planet of the Apes. Anybody see Planet of the Apes, a new one? All right. Don't, you shouldn't admit that, but uh, I did too. But, uh, you know, it's like Evolution 101, of course. And, uh, I mean, you kind of go knowing that it's stupid. Um, but, you know, there's a scene that, that is really very uh, uh, insulting where they, they pray to, uh, you know, some monkey from long ago and the monkey's going to return again. Of course, he comes in a spaceship. Uh, and, you know, you know what they're saying. You know, the, the educated monkeys, uh, apes, uh, you know, they don't really uh, believe in that. But, you know, we have to have some way to cope with the rigors of life. And so every culture invents some kind of way to kind of cope with the rigors of life. Well, let me ask you this. Would you invent a God like this? Would you invent a God who reigns in utter purity, who has razor-sharp edges? He says something and he means it, and when it's tested, we find out he meant it. If you eat of it, you shall surely die. Oh, you will not surely die. Well, guess what? He means what he says. He is who he is. He will be who he will be. I mean, who would invent a God like that? Who would invent a God who would include such people, not only in the Bible, but in the very lineage of Jesus Christ? Let's look at some of those. You have uh, Abraham. Well, you know, Abraham lied like Pinocchio to save his neck a couple times, didn't he? You got a liar in there. Not only that, he, before God plucked him out, he was a, an idol worshiper in Ur of the Chaldees. He was not some righteous man. He was a pagan. And God found this pagan, pagan found favor upon him for God's own reasons. And Abraham starts the whole process here. Um, what else? Uh, he's, he's got a grandson named Jacob, who's, uh, you know, slick Jacob. And he's a cheater, and he's a philanderer. In fact, his name means cheater or supplanter. All right, so he's a shyster. Well, what about his kid, Judah? You know, all people really know is Lion of Judah, and we think, oh, yay, Judah. Go, Judah. Well, you know what? Uh, how did he end up in here? Look at verse 3. Judah was the father of Perez and Zarah, whose mother was Tamar. All right, that's not David's daughter, Tamar. That's a different Tamar. That's the earlier Tamar. How did those two guys come to be? Well, you know, Judah, his wife died. And uh, he's bummed out. He has a long period of grief, his wife, for many years. And, and when he finally gets over his grief, let me just keep this rated G, but let me just say when he finally gets over his grief, uh, he does the, you know, the natural thing for a pious man, he goes out and finds a lady of the evening. So he wanders into town. He's like, well, hi there. You look nice. And uh, guess who it is? It's Tamar. You know why? Because her husband was a bad dude, Er, E-R, and the Lord killed him because he was bad. And uh, so she's like, well, I want a son. So she dresses up like a lady of the evening. And, uh, and, and, and uh, you know, with her father-in-law, and then he, he, he says, well, she's accused of, you know what, ing. And uh, I'm trying to keep this rated G. <laughs> you know, the Old Testament is not rated G. Um, he, he, she, he, she's found out for you know what, ing. And he says, well, she has to be burned to death. And, and, and she says, yoo-hoo, you remember these things? Oh. And so anyway, she gets pregnant by her father-in-law. So you have incest in the family line of Jesus Christ. Now, that's not pretty. All right, what about, uh, look at verse 6. Um, oh, yeah, all right. Uh, 
Jesse was the fa- Jesse was the father of King David. We know that. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Who, who was Uriah's wife? Who? Bathsheba. You know, it's not. They don't. We don't put the name in here, but we know who that is. We know what went down. That's not a pretty sight, but it is in the line of Jesus Christ, our Savior. All right, here's another one. Look at verse 5. This is a good one. Uh, Salmon, the father of Boaz. All right, Boaz. Does that ring a bell? Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was... Wow. Rahab. Hid the spies, had a strange occupation. And it's also interesting because you have Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. You know, this just in. And then you have Boaz, the father of Obed, this just in, whose mother was Ruth. Well, we remember Ruth, but don't you find it interesting that you have another this just in right there? It's as if to say, can you believe this? Whose mother was Rahab? A you-know-what. Whose mother was Ruth? A you-know-what. A Moabitess? A foreigner? There is a foreigner. Does that not like, does that not cry out for God's grace? Does that not call for the inclusion of uh, Gentiles in God's plan? Um, Manasseh in verse 10. You know, he, he sacrificed his own son to, to Baal. Uh, in 2 Kings it says that he spilled so much blood that he filled Jerusalem from end to end. Uh, Amon is on the list. He's, he rejected God. All that to say, Jesus had some not so great grandparents. You know, there's some ugliness in that family line. Why did God use these people? Why didn't he just take a basket and drop Jesus off at Mary's doorstep? Save her the, the hassle and, and all that. Why not? Why didn't he just come floating down some river? Why? Well, I think it's very simple. He could. That's one reason. But I think he also knew that you and I would watch the news tonight. And we would look at it and see things Hey, you know, the older we get, the more things we see. Um, you know, we're not... You know, the older you get, you, you know, you're not more sheltered. You're more astute. <laughs> and you understand how evil things are. I mean, I hate to be some of your ages. Uh, because you know how bad the world really is, you know. And uh, I think God knows this. I think He knows that. I think He knows that you and I would fret as to the direction of history. And see this world around us and just go, gosh, it's, it's so bad and fallen. I think he also knows that you and I at times would be overwhelmed by our own sin. And look at our life and need to know that the God of history is beyond history and above history and controlling history. And maybe, just maybe... God may have the details of my own life in His consummate control too. Maybe that's why the genealogy of the Savior is so complicated and, and ugly. Two more things and uh, I'll, I'll wrap it up. One of them is this. Um, you know, it's, it's kind of neat because I, <clears throat> I plan to do this. You know, Richard and Jeff and I sat down, you know, kind of thought what we were going to do in the summer and you know, a while back and kind of check with each other and, and all that. And uh, I thought, well, Ruth. And um, like the whole church is doing Ruth right now. 
some latest thing and there's somebody else doing it and everybody's reading this book. Anybody read this, read this book, Shattered Dreams? All right. Like everybody's reading this book. All right. Well, I have a key to the bookstore. And uh, I didn't buy this. I went in there and I thought, because everybody said, you got to get it. you got to get it. You just have to get it. And I know you're doing Ruth. You really need to get it. And so I thought, well, okay. So I read it. I got it. And then I thought, the last thing I want to do is, uh, you know, preach Larry Crabb for a month and have you follow along. Uh, so I like to hide my sources better than that. And uh, so I didn't read this. In fact, I kind of like not reading everything that, that everybody else is reading. I guess kind of like, yeah, I'm not going to read it. You know, I'm, I'm not going to read this. All right. Uh, in fact, it's in pristine condition. One of you will buy this, and I'm going to put it right back in the bookstore. But there, there's one thing I did read, because I, I, I got curious. I thought, what's he going to write about the genealogy at the end? And really, he's got, you know, it's only, it's only you know, like two pages. But I, I opened it up, and this is somewhat out of context, but I opened it up. It's at the very, I mean, it's almost at the end. And a, and a phrase jumped out at me that I just thought was wonderful. It's this phrase. He says, he says, perhaps it is the unforced rhythm of grace that carries me from the pain of shattered dreams and so on. But that, that's, that, that, those two words, uh, those several words, the unforced rhythm of grace, the unforced rhythm. Isn't that, a, isn't that a wonderful statement? The unforced rhythm of grace. It's, it's, it's as if... You know, history plods along, and, and unlike, unlike the way people think, it just doesn't flop and float and flip and, and unfold and, and evolve. You know, it, 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 it's an unforced rhythm. Our God is up there. He's got plans. Oh, God, I need an answer to my prayer. Relax. You know, oh, but I'm in Hold on. You know, he'll answer, he'll help, he'll assist, but there's this unforced rhythm that, that moves through the lives of his children. Here's my last thing. This is from old Matthew Henry. I thought, what's old Matthew Henry uh, uh, going to say about this? And I opened it up, and it, it was kind of... Oh, he said one really kooky thing I won't tell you, but, but, uh, but you know, he's just, he's one, he writes a lot like Spurgeon. I don't know if anybody likes Spurgeon, but, I mean, it's just wonderful deep, wonderful stuff. And he ends the whole book of Ruth before he gets to Samuel. The last thing he says is this. The genealogy here is drawn from Perez through Boaz and Obed to David and so leads toward the Messiah and therefore is not an endless genealogy. Now, Bruce Myers' gears are, you know, he's calculating, you know, the hard drive spinning. Therefore, it is not an endless genealogy. I, what, what intrigued me about that is the way he put it. He didn't say, thus brings, you know, to the end. He says it's not an endless genealogy, okay? It's almost, it's almost kind of double negative. He, he could have said, uh, it is an endless genealogy. Wait a second. It, it is. See, I, see what I mean? Is anybody confused by that? But me? All right. I had some dim years in college, but uh, uh, but I think what's so interesting is that I had this all worked out uh, before. But he's the, yes, that right, right. He said he could have said this an end of the genealogy, right? But he says it is not an end of the genealogy, which I found a very intriguing way to put it. Is what my point is. 
And I think what he's trying to do is amplify the point that, that it all is aiming somewhere. I think he phrased it that way, not just to blow my pee mind, but, but to amplify the fact that it all points somewhere. And God's plan culminates. It, it, it moves through history and courses and turns and twists with, a, with an unforced rhythm and shows up, culminates in our Savior Jesus Christ. God wants us to know, I think, in these kinds of things, that when the world seems to be going wild, God remains calm. You know, when the waves are crashing all around us, God has the power to say, peace, be still. And if you don't believe that, and you want proof, you just look at the last name on the list. Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. It is for God to say, my plans always succeed. And it is to say that there is not a safer thing for the Christian to pray than this. Thy will be done. Our Father, we do pray that your name would be revered in this world, that your name would be hallowed in the heavens, and more close to home, we pray that uh, your name would be exalted, cared for, guarded, venerated in our own souls. We pray that your kingdom would come and that your will would be done. But we don't pray those. Uh, we don't pray those without uh, understanding our place in that. That uh, your kingdom is to spread throughout our lives that your will is to spread and increase in our lives, in our dealings with others, and in our thoughts toward you, our service to you. We pray that your will would be done, understanding that you are the God who controls the flow of history, and you are the God who delights in scooping up people like us. We thank you that you did. We pray that our love would increase. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks, everybody.